Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy! Chinese food stall vendors, all that sort of stuff. Uh, what we're going to talk about is more like a modern part of what street food is now and the urban food truck movement, gourmet food trucks, and a little bit about the politics as well, and then I will get out of your hair. <laughs> uh, so this is Chapter 5, LA's Modern Influx. The most recent wave of street food dominance in Los Angeles actually began close to 40 years ago, thanks to an overwhelming pilgrimage of Central American and Mexican immigrants who had made the pilgrimage from their homes. Uh, many arrived illegally and found themselves unable to work above board jobs. So they turned to street vending as a way to make ends meet. Now, in short order, city regulators and the police once again turned on the vendors as they had 80 to 100 years before, attempting to drive them off through a war often of outright attrition. Researcher Fazila Bahimji chronicles many of these issues in her anthropological work. I sound very intelligent in this book. Um, struggles, urban citizenship, and belongings, uh, laying out a timeline of harassment, particularly against female vendors during this time. So over one nine-month period in 1987, they chronicled that the paper had 250 vendors that were outright convicted and did time in jail for selling street food illegally. Nearly 30% of those, time, those people spent more than a month in jail. So by 1994, protests over the treatment of street vendors had hit City Hall, which responded by having officers issue over 800 tickets to vendors in and around MacArthur Park in one three-week period. The planned crackdown backfired, with local media and neighborhood consumers coming together to push for relaxed enforcement in the face of a lack of much meaningful regulation from the city. Street food, as always, belonged to the people, and those people would simply never let it disappear. Some attempt at balanced regulation measures did come to pass during this time, and they've gone on to help stitch together the patchwork of laws and oversight that's meant to guide today's street food vendors. So what that means is commissary kitchens have been established that would in effect allow vendors to prep food on site before moving to the streets to sell, though not on any public land like in parks or on sidewalks. Instead, vendors must not only work within the confines and pay rent to a nearby commissary, but they must also pass routine health inspections, lease a cart for their work, and pay for storage rights on all of that equipment. The result, particularly for the growing influx of undocumented immigrants from nations like El Salvador and Guatemala, is a rift between hardworking vendors who can afford to play by the rules and unlicensed operators who enjoy all the benefits of street food vending but eschew all of that pricey overhead. So by the mid-2000s, Los Angeles' street food scene is again ready for a change. These old laws haven't slowed down its growth and more and more consumers are starting to become conscious of the food that they eat and where it comes from. So writers and eaters begin to explore the city's street food meccas in South L.A. and Boyle Heights, particularly where these trucks and tables are congregating. Breed Street and Boyle Heights became a ground zero for late-night Mexican street food parties, even eventually garnering a review of sorts by LA Weekly writer Jonathan Gold in 2009, near the end of its run. However, growing attention on the Breed Street vendors ultimately forced them to disperse, following a few high-profile crackdowns elsewhere in the city. So the city's heightened awareness of street food, coupled with a changing national attitude towards the way we think about where our meals come from, couldn't actually have come at a better time. By late 2008 and 2009, shifting markets allowed a new kind of quality-conscious street food to emerge, the gourmet food truck. Chapter 6, Gourmet Food Trucks. (laughs) 
Every, every good idea needs a strong-willed person to see it through. And in the case of L.A.'s and largely the nascent street food revolution, that man is Roy Choi. Uh, the longtime restaurant chef with an upscale pedigree is more than anyone credited with entirely revamping the street food industry. Choi's first burst of fame came by way of Kogi Barbecue, of course, a uh, dingy roaming white food truck covered in skate apparel stickers. After spending years working in hotel kitchens and on stuffy restaurant lines, Choi and his partners emerged in late 2008 with the idea of Kogi Barbecue, a Korean fusion experience that marries two of the biggest demographics in Los Angeles. Quesadillas would get stuffed with kimchi, tacos filled with a Korean spice short rib. Definitely not authentic, but definitely delicious. Authenticity lies in tradition and technique and culture, says Choi, who's become something of a street food philosopher after all these years. We must remember that they are all created by people and therefore can change. Nostalgia is in the mind. So using this genre-busting menu as a gateway, Choi and the Kogi team slung tacos on the streets of Hollywood for weeks, getting tourists, bouncers, and locals to try the unique menu, all while using Twitter as a way to draw in and point to a particular location by the social media team that ran it. So it could be Compton one night, Mid-City another, and maybe Santa Monica the night after that. Kogi not only revamped the idea of what late-night food, and fusion food in particular, could be, but it also changed the way that people thought about Los Angeles geographically. People from upscale neighborhoods might drive to some of the poorest sections of the city just to stand in line for a short rib taco. And in that first year, Choi and his team fed everyone and everyone, anyone and everyone who was willing to eat. Food trucks and go anywhere from Bel Air to Belmont now, says Choi, and Kogi changed that straight up. And he's right. I mean, Kogi changed a lot of things about Los Angeles street food forever. By the end of 2009, dozens of food trucks has, had emerged in L.A., some as a direct competitor and bold ripoff of Kogi itself, others, others with their own concepts and determined chefs. Operators like the Grilled Cheese Truck were early adopters of the gourmet street food lifestyle, other trucks like Dogtown Dogs, a lot of these places that are still running on the streets today. And by 2010, the market was already beginning to look flooded. The great food truck race premiered on the Food Network in August of that year with local burger makers Grill them all, taking home top prize. They now have a great location in Alhambra. Um, on the ground, longtime vendors were still competing for space and customers, but with newer, shinier trucks. And oftentimes, those trucks had a lot of financial backing. So, longtime local street food operations, mostly the staple corner taco truck operating from a simple lonchero, generally managed to stay afloat during this tumultuous time. But despite the initial pressure to outperform the competition, gourmet food trucks and local street vendors ended up forming a mostly symbiotic relationship. With the increased overall presence of street food in the wider media helping to propel both sides to success that they hadn't seen before, all while destigmatizing the entire street food culture in the process. So in the years since the early food truck boom, many gourmet operators have since moved into brick-and-mortar restaurants, or several, as is the case with the Komodo truck and a lot of their street food predecessors. Others have been bought out or franchised. Many of the higher-end new waves of trucks have simply ceased operations altogether. Street food vending was never for the faint of heart, as plenty of chefs, owners, and quick-money businessmen soon found out. So today's gourmet food truck scene is a far cry from the market in 2010 or 2011. Vendors can rely on social media, can't rely on social media exclusively as a customer driver, so they've expanded into routines, planned stops at locations where a lot of customers or uh, toward private catering gigs. Instead of chasing a truck from one end of the city to the other, curious diners now either rely on their favorite trucks to stick to a predetermined schedule that matches their own lifestyle, or they go out of their way to seek trucks at large events or curated evenings. As for the true street food vendors, those bacon-wrapped hot dog sellers or the champarado pourers or the lonchero drivers, and as a whole, they haven't really gone anywhere. Buoyed by increased consumer comfort with street food, once again, these authentic operators are moving to the forefront of the Los Angeles dining scene. Maybe they're being heralded at one of the many food festivals in town or asked to move into a permanent or semi-permanent space inside of a food hall. Chapter 7, 
the politics of street food. There are still issues of policing that come with such a heightened presence, however. Much of Los Angeles' street food vending operations are still wholly illegal, operating without permits on public property and with the very real fear that at any moment their livelihood could be thrown into the back of a trash truck. Los Angeles' vending laws are nearly as archaic towards street food today as they were 100 years ago, but the tides are changing. An influx of like-minded city hall officials is aimed to bring clarity to the situation, enabling street food vendors to sell their wares in peace so long as they follow the proper protocols. For street food heavy neighborhoods like Boyle Heights, I mean, that's a boon not only to the economy, but also to the local population that's either come to rely on the extra income earned from a second shift working a grill, or by being the customer who needs to eat well and cheap during those off hours. There also exists very little hegemony within the overall landscape of Los Angeles when it comes to street food regulation. Cities within cities like Beverly Hills can often shape their street food policy independently of the larger organism, which in years past has led to plenty of struggle and confusion. There were local ordinances passed, town hall meetings that erupted into shouting matches, and often disproportionate responses by police when cracking down on illegal or unlicensed street vendors. To say nothing of the murky legal legal grounds of unincorporated parts of the county where fewer regulations have led to a proliferation of street food with little or no accountability at all. But in truth, there's always been some sense of politicking and gerrymandering to the street food process in Los Angeles, even without county health and safety regulations. For decades, permit and parking restrictions have worked to help keep the perceived riffraff out of particular residential neighborhoods or corralled them into workable commercial clusters. As a result, much of the concentration of street food still happens outside of the major urban core of Los Angeles. The taco carts and fruit vendors seen from downtown to Santa Monica are just a fraction of the larger scene, which thrives largely unchecked in areas like Boyle Heights, the Northeast Valley, and South LA. They become street food meccas for those willing to seek things out, but their inability to safely and legitimately vend closer to the city's core speaks volumes about the way that these vendors are seen by many of those people in charge. We got a fan in the back. Um... And after more than 150 years, there's never been a better time to be serving, eating, and learning about Los Angeles' street food culture. Licensed and unlicensed vendors share common space across the city, earning catering gigs and setting up shop in front of weekday business parks. Street food festivals are more popular than ever, serving thousands who come to see what all the fuss is about. And through waves of popularity and potential interlopers, through years of harsh citywide enforcement and foggy regulation, street food remains an indelible part of this city. It is important both as a cultural indicator and as a survival tool for feeding thousands of people every night. It also happens to be delicious. (laughs) That's it. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for for coming. Do we have questions? What's your favorite food truck? Ooh. uh, My favorite food truck is a truck uh, called El Chato on Olympic and La Brea that parks there like six nights a week. What's your order? Ooh, the El Pastor quesadilla. Uh, I will say this. My fiancé is in the audience. Uh, The night that we got engaged, we got very happily drunk and then made our friends drive us to El Chato, and we (laughs) ate that quesadilla. That's how much we both love it. (laughs) Yes? Uh, All the high-end chefs that you talk to that come here from other states Mm -hmm. that get uh, poached. Sure. When you talk to them about food in LA and being here and cooking here, are they more interested in their food and making their food a thing of LA or do they, how quickly do they get involved in the existing food scene? 
Can you repeat the question for the podcast? Sure, yeah. Uh, the question is, like, uh, chefs from out of town who maybe who work in higher-end restaurants come to Los Angeles, how quickly do they integrate themselves, if at all, into the street food world? Um, everyone that I've talked to, all of my experiences have been that, like, people who come to Los Angeles are absolutely amazed at the amount of street food and then seriously dismayed at the lack of legislation. And Los Angeles remains the only real large city in America that doesn't have a codified legal system for dealing with street food vendors. So you go to places like New York City and there are great vendors that operate in Midtown or wherever and they're above board, they're allowed to franchise, the city has their full support or they have the full support of the city I should say uh, and that's just not the case with Los Angeles and so they end up tracking down stuff on their own and then really starting to find out that there's a larger network that is really, really struggling. Yeah. Are there any like, legislation in place to Totally, yeah. So there is existing old school legislation, um, like I mentioned a little bit about you know getting commissaries. Uh, you'll notice on regular food trucks, gourmet food trucks, they get graded just like this, like regular restaurants in the city. But when you're talking about like the fruit cart person in front of your bank or the late night person selling bacon wrapped hot dogs out on Hollywood Boulevard, there is no legislation for them whatsoever. And uh, there are people like um, Councilman Huizar who operates for Boyle Heights East LA who are trying to change those things but it's still really bad out there. I mean, the city council just voted last month to start cracking down on anybody who operates on the beach. So that's like people who do morning like yoga routines, people who do like boot camps out there. Because it's a public beach, you're technically not allowed to be doing any level of business. But that also means like guys selling popsicles can't operate anymore and they will come in and take all their stuff and throw it in the back of a trash truck. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, the question is whether or not there's tension between brick-and-mortar restaurants and food trucks. Uh, absolutely there was in the beginning, and there still is to a certain degree. I think, like, if you ever drive down Wilshire Boulevard in the middle of the week, there's all those food trucks in front of those businesses. There were turf wars, for lack of a better term. Businesses would hire people to park in spots so the trucks couldn't get there. And there was all, like, violence and stuff. It was really, really bad, but I think it was because people were figuring it out. Now what you've got is a lot of those gourmet folks that are still around to figure it out how to work within the system and make it symbiotic for everybody. So it's, it's a much more handshake, everyone's friendly kind of thing than it was a few years ago. Yes, sir? Is there an international city you've been to that really impressed you Oh, boy. I mean, just about any cool city that you can think of has, like, a street food mecca. You know, like, um, there are plenty of cities that I haven't even been to but know enough about. Um, in India, street food is obviously super present. You know, it's, like, everywhere, and you can go for a quarter, eat like a king. I mean, it's unbelievable. But uh, Southeast Asia obviously has a really, really strong culture of that. Places like Mexico City that really are... are defining what street food is globally and helping to change that stuff. And I think what Los Angeles could do a better job of is looking out to those places and see, well, there's obviously millions of people who live in Singapore and they're eating street food every night and not, not anybody is, like, getting sick. We, there's a better way that we could be handling this to make sure that everybody is getting exactly what they want. People get sick in restaurants, too. So exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And for what it's worth, I've, I've never gotten sick at a street food cart. Like, I, I have a little bit... What's that? Sorry, I got sick at a restaurant. My fiance got sick at a restaurant once. Um, <laughs> facts. Um, and you know, 
this is, I didn't talk about this tonight, but there's a little bit of this early on in the book that is the idea that street food vending is a dirty process or an unwelcome process is something that has been introduced by other, introduced by other members of society since the very beginning. The city of Los Angeles has been trying to stop street food vending for 150 years. And you have these people who propagate these ideas that, oh, it's dirty and you're going to get sick or that it's unlicensed and that means that it's unsafe. The truth is these are super hardworking people who are often making this their second or sometimes their third job and they have every interest in serving you a quality product at a low price because otherwise if you get sick you're going to tell everybody and it's going to put them out of business. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and and really like I've said this before. Anytime you, if there's something you ever didn't feel safe about, you're free to walk away. It's an open market. Um, but it's in their best interest to make you good food. Yeah. Well, you know, what I like about street food is that the, the person who's operating it is usually the chefs. You're mm-hmm. getting the food from the chef. And, Absolutely. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Frog, the Frogtown Art Walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people, like mom and pops, are, are really like they making their food and they're putting it on their lawn basically right. you know, yeah. I'm like oh this is like homemade food and things this is these are our family recipes I feel like I'm eating I'm, yeah I'm, yeah I'm eating something and it, there's there's some photos in the book but it, the place isn't mentioned because I, I wasn't able to mention them um, because it's it's such an illegal operation but in Monterey Park a, 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 what is essentially a backyard Burmese spot where it is a, a family that will let you into their backyard where they've got tables set up and you can eat like amazing Burmese vo- versions of cow soy and that sort of stuff and these are people who are literally opening their homes to you. They've been doing this for a long time. You know, it's, there's heart and soul into it, absolutely. Going to start your own food truck, what would be the concept? Oh man. Uh, in the way that every like comedian secretly wants to be a rock star, every food writer secretly wants to have their own restaurant. Uh, I would I would do something something similar to like what Egg Slut used to do. Like a simple breakfast sandwich operation, that would be me. That's the thing that like in my latest drinking hours or earliest mornings I find myself driving around figuring out what like the best egg sandwich is. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Yeah, do you think the best sandwich is on pretzel bread? No, absolutely not. No. I hate to outright be mean to you, but that's wrong. Um, too chewy. The bread's too chewy. I want you to just take a side. That's right. I'll take a stand. Anything else? Yes. What's the best egg sandwich? Oh, boy. See, a great sandwich. Uh, or a great question. Question. Uh, I mean, egg slut. <laughs> Yeah, I'm all flustered now. Oh, my God, what is the best sandwich? I mean, Egg Slut is still probably one of the best. Um, the Yeasty Boys truck, they do a really great egg sandwich on a bagel. I tend to skew more towards burritos these days. So then you go to, like, Tacos Via Corona or Lucy's on Pico and La Brea, things like that. But uh, I, I'm always in search if you guys have any good ideas. Yes, sir? How do you uh, boy, this is turning into an egg sandwich podcast, uh, which I'm happy to talk about. Uh, scrambled, usually. I think that's probably the easiest way to, like, get eggs into my body. But a nice fried egg is great. Yeah. Any other egg-related questions? 
I will ask the last question then. Sure. So what is the future of street food in Los Angeles? What are some of the trends that you think are happening? Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of it is very dependent on the regulation. Uh, I do think that you will see probably within the next five years a real comprehensive system, legal system come down that allows vendors to operate in peace, which is going to make it so much easier and so much better for everybody, both the operators and the people who come to Los Angeles and people who live here for enjoying that food. Uh, in terms of trucks and things like that, probably what you'll start to see is a lot more merging of existing concepts and the street food element. People realize now that you can't just tweet out a location and hope a thousand people are going to show up. So, you know, you look at like old school ideas, even Kogi Barbecue now, which is six, seven years old, or like the old In-N-Out truck. I mean, these are people who have operated in brick and mortar locations and they use those street food outlets as a way to say, cool, you've had this, this is like a hip fun version, now come to my other restaurants, now come experience this different version of this thing that I'm doing somewhere else. So merging brick and mortar locations with street food locations into one kind of happy, dynamic like ecosystem is probably the future. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank Thanks for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. And we hope to see you soon.